This week, the Comics Guys explain Quality Comics, Part 2. Yes, thank you, Ben. We're back with more about Quality Comics. Where we last left off, we were talking about their two big comics, Smash and Feature, in the opposite order, though. Uh, so what happens after Smash and Feature? So now it's the end of 39, right? Comics are, you know, uh, are a successful business. And superheroes as a fad are uh, are a huge hit, right? Like everybody's got to, every comic's got to have superheroes in it now. Superheroes are like the big thing. And anything with superheroes in it is selling. So, you know, like the quality of the superheroes doesn't necessarily seem to mean that much, right? Now, when we say that uh, Smash and Feature were successful, they were hits, they were profitable, right? Like they were making money for the company. But compared to the superhero comics that were smashes, that were huge hits, compared to Superman, compared to Batman, compared to Captain Marvel, these you know none of uh, none of Quality's characters were any close anywhere close to that, right? Like in that level. But it's enough. Busy Arnold sees what's happening around him, what's possible. Again, he is more and more interested in like the potential of the comics, right? And so he's been saying all along, I want to cut out these middlemen. I've made these deals uh, directly with Lou Fine and Will Eisner and everything to do stuff straight for me. And now we're big enough. I want to add some more comics to the line. And I want to start my own in-house studio. I want to bring some guys uh, you know, to actually come work for me full-time and we'll put out more comics and we'll own them. Right, like we won't have to pay licensing fees to the other houses and that sort of thing to make this stuff happen. So uh, he decides to do that, um, and uh, the first thing he does, Arnold himself keeps an office in New York City on Madison Avenue, but he doesn't want to pay New York City prices for it to have a studio. Right, like he looks around at kind of like what the cost for that sort of thing is going to be, and he's just like, that's ah, a little much, you know. If I'm going to pay to have six or seven guys uh, hanging out and working here, I'm not going to do this in New York City and pay New York City real estate. And so he decides to move the main office of the company that once again is not yet fully being called Quality Comics, right? Like it doesn't have that name yet. Right now, it's just kind of like the busy Arnold house uh, for the two titles. Um, and he says, we're going to move this office to Stanford, Connecticut, which is about 40 miles away from New York City. And he convinces, you know, he's like, it's going to be much cheaper to live there. You can still commute into the city when you want to. In fact, I'm going to commute back and forth between them. But the office that we're actually going to maintain is in Stanford because I can buy a much nicer place in Stanford, uh, you know, for considerably less money and, you know, like put you guys to work there. And so he now starts recruiting people away from the other shops, from the, you know, the shops basically to come work for him full time. He hires a guy named Ed Cronin to be his new editor for the line. And among the crew that he starts to bring over with them is uh, Lou Fine, who is doing the Ray for him already as a, you know, as, as, as a hit, basically. And Jack Cole and Gil Fox. Those are the other two kind of like well-known names. There were also two or three other kids who are completely forgotten. There's about six guys originally who were doing this. Um, but Jack Cole and Gil Fox will both go on to be famous for their later creations. Lou Fine was the head of that operation, right? Like he was the he was the one who was famous. He was the one who'd had some successes. And uh, Gil Kane talks about, uh, you know, in the very earliest days of comics, before Jack Kirby got to be famous and was being ripped off by everyone, 
uh, Lufine was the standard that you tried to rip off, right? Like Lufine was the guy who's like his uh, clean and expressive uh, pencils and inks and everything were were uh, easy to read, were great for storytelling. He had a very you know strong sense of style and how to stage a fight or an action scene, that sort of thing. And a lot of other professionals in the industry, a lot of editors in the industry would tell young uh, artists, go look at what Lufine is doing, right? Do something like that. That's how you tell a comic book story. Now, Kirby's expressiveness when he comes in is going to overwhelm Lufine, right? And suddenly everybody will want to do the big, brash, bright and colorful, busting out of a panel kind of thing that Jack Kirby did. And that will be kind of like the standard going forward. And it's Lufine and his kind of the people who were ripping off his style who start to get kind of pushed out of the way when Kirby's Captain America and that sort of thing, uh, you know, kind of like explode onto the scene. But Lufine still considered a great, you know, draftsman, a great crafter of, uh, of comics, and was definitely the biggest name of the people in the, uh, in the Stamford office. So Stamford, as a city, uh, its nickname, apparently, at the time for it, was known as the Quality City. That was like their, you know, version of being called like the Big Apple or something like that, right? Like it was the, the city nickname. And so uh, the as they were kind of like casting around for a name for the studio offices, they wound up calling it the quality studio, kind of making fun of the, you know, city's nickname for Stamford. And that stuck, basically. It became the name of the actual company. Busy Arnold changed the name of the company to be called Quality Comics. And starting around the middle of 1940, the comics they were putting out had quality on the cover. Had a had a you know a, a bullseye logo basically of of for quality comics uh, on the titles of each comics. So the other guy that Arnold wanted to bring over full time um, to come work in his studio was Will Eisner because he had made friends with Eisner and already Eisner was had done uh, Dollman for him, um, and so he kept making offers to Will Eisner to come join the studio. And Eisner, like I said, was part of, you know, was the half owner of the shop that was getting raided for all of these characters, for all of these, these artists, right? The, the, all of the, you know, uh, people were being stolen away from his shop to go work for full time for the companies, right? And so Will kind of sees the writing on the wall. It's not just quality that is taking his guys, right? Like National is also stealing his guys and other people, Timely is stealing his guys. The business model of running a shop within just, you know, like four years, five years of it being invented is already going out of business because the publishers realize it makes more sense not to have a middleman doing this. If, you know, comics have become a big enough deal and are worth enough as a, as a line of business that there's no sense in having these consolidated places anymore. Every place is getting their own in-house studio. So Eisner, uh, you know, sees what's happening and Basically, he and Iger say, you know what, we're, we're going out of this business. We're going to dissolve the company. Um, Iger kept part of it going for a while, but Eisner basically cashed himself out of that, that side of the company and went to work with Busy Arnold. Now, Will Eisner has written a, a couple of different versions of his autobiography, and a couple of other people have done them. And so there's various versions of how this went. But basically, the, the story of his relationship with Arnold was that... Um, Eisner jokes, he says, uh, I thought of him as my business partner and he thought of me as his employee, right? Like he, you know, he kind of like went in with a lot of expectations about how much in charge of the operation he was going to be. And Busy Arnold 
with no, you know, according to Eisner, with no kind of like malicious intent, thought he was getting a guy who worked for him, right? And just happened to be paid with a portion of the of the profits, right? But it was still busy Arnold's business to make decisions about. And so the two of them uh, kind of like form this partnership. Eisner is still, you know, like doing material basically for uh, quality, but they also go into the business of creating newspaper inserts because newspapers are still where the money is, right? Like the syndicates are still making more money than the comics, though that's getting closer and closer every day, right? Like Superman is making more money for comics than he is for newspaper strips, right? Um, and, uh, and and that sort of thing. So, I mean, like comics are definitely gaining on it, but newspaper comics are still the the standard, right? Like it's that's the respectable side of cartooning, right? Like if you have a newspaper comic, you're famous. Whereas if you have a comic book, you're still kind of like a punk kid getting started up, right? Like comics are still this brand new kind of like Wild West business, whereas syndicate comics are, you know, for serious and involve men wearing suits and ties and throwing around a lot of money. And so Arnold and Eisner create a character and create a, 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 a concept, basically, that will be called the spirit section, which will be a syndicated collection of comics that will be larger than basically will be like a, a, a new feature to put in a newspaper, a new color feature that will be several pages long going into your newspaper that will consist of only two or three comics. It, each of them will be several pages long and it will basically be getting like a mini comic book for free in your newspaper as part of your newspaper subscription. And the newspaper will be the ones paying to, you know, to have this in kind of the way that modern, you know, or more modern newspapers have like parade magazine and that sort of thing, right? Like this would be a collection. It would be a free comic that came in your newspaper. And the lead character in that was called the spirit. And the spirit is, will go on to be one of the most influential comic book characters ever created. And Will Eisner will become you know, like uh, uh, quite uh, appropriately famous as one of the great, uh, you know, designers and writers and artists of, of uh, you know, primarily for that character. Um, this isn't really the place to go into the entire history of the spirit. At some point, we will probably do a full-on Will Eisner episode that will go into more detail. But the spirit section will be extremely popular, extremely successful for you know, well over a decade and will make Arnold and Eisner both a, you know, pretty nice amount of money uh, selling that. The spirit section will also include uh, two backup characters that also have stories separately that are co-created by Eisner, but Eisner will very quickly farm out the work of actually making them. One of them is Lady Luck, who we referred to uh, last episode as one of the features that appears in Smash. And the other is a mystical hero called uh, Mr. Mystic. And so this 16-page, uh, you know, like collection basically will appear every Sunday in the Sunday paper, uh, you know, like being being churned out. Um, Arnold really liked this idea, right? The the spirit section will be a success. It will run until 1952, and it will make them both a pile of money. Arnold very much wanted to do this with other people, right? He was like, a, the, you know, working with Will Eisner has been great. It's made me a bunch of money. Um, and I wish I could find other artists, writer artists to partner with to do something similar to Spirit. And he looked to uh, people that he was working with already. Um, Lou Fine and Frank Brenner were kind of like the most obvious ones since they were the next two biggest names working with him, right? Like Brenner had done The Clock, 
uh, as a character. And Lou Fine was doing the Ray at the time and had helped Eisner create Dollman in the first place. The problems were that uh, Frank Brenner uh, had a bit of a drinking problem. Um, whether or not he was actually an alcoholic is a matter of some debate. His son insists that he was not. Uh, but regardless, he was considered unreliable um, and getting worse over that time period. Right? Eventually, he will uh, give up the clock as a strip entirely and uh, get out of the comic book business. Um, and so uh, Arnold did not feel that he could uh, trust Brenner to turn out, you know, like even a portion of a 16 page thing every week. And Lou Fine was just too slow to rely on for a weekly, right? Lou Fine would, uh, his, his, uh, output kind of like came in fits and starts, right? Like he would, uh, not turn in anything for weeks at a time. And then apparently he would stay up all week, uh, stay up all night for a week and just turn out an enormous number of, of, of pages and like cover his month, uh, you know, like um, amount of work in the last five days of the month. And uh, it was always an adventure with Lou Fine, kind of like, you know, whether or not he was actually going to, like, make his deadlines. And he didn't make them every time, but he made them most of the time. But regardless, uh, uh, Arnold felt that that was not the kind of guy that he wanted to be working with on a weekly basis, that that was just not going to fly. Um, so he never found another person to partner with. Um, Eisner and Arnold, you know, stayed friends. They continued to occasionally have their disputes, um, and that continued even after the series quit. But in general, compared to the kind of like crooks and shenanigans that generally were just standard parts of doing business in the golden age of comics, Busy Arnold, you know, like they, they made money and they were fair about it, right? Like the comics that came in, he paid his guys, he paid his people on time. He may have had disputes about who was in charge with Will Eisner, but he never missed paying Eisner his check, right? And Eisner never, you know, like had to go after him for anything. They never had any lawsuits, like the entire, you know, list of uh, of problems that Jack Kirby had with everybody who, you know, like ever employed him. And so Quality had this reputation, at least in the 40s, as one of the best paying and just generally fairest places that you could work compared to all of the other kind of like crooks and, you know, like mobsters that were around. Um, Arnold, you know, was in his office on Madison Avenue. Uh, and, you know, he continued to bring in uh, a, a bunch of new people to his, uh, um, to his studio. He tried a couple of times to bring Jack Kirby over and somehow it never worked out. And you can kind of imagine uh, what, you know, what, what life might, might've been like for Jack Kirby had he managed to find a studio like quality uh, that would just like put him in one place and leave him alone. Um, and, you know, like what he might have been able to create under that circumstance and whether or not, you know, he could have done what he wound up doing for Atlas or Marvel or something like that. If he could have done that for quality, uh, that's kind of a, you know, interesting alternate universe. Um, when Eisner finally came over, when he dissolved Eisner Iger, a few more people came over and joined the studio with him. Among them were Chuck Quadera, uh, who will be considerably more famous in a bit, uh, and Nick Cardi, who won't get famous for quality, but later will become one of DC's most notable character, uh, uh, character creators and artists in the 60s, um, where he's doing Aquaman and uh, Teen Titans. He is a co-creator of the Teen Titans and a couple of other uh, titles over there. The other interesting person that came with Eisner uh, through E&I was Tony Bloom. And Tony Bloom was one of a very small number of women freelancing uh, in the comics business at this time. 
Um, she had uh, uh, become a, a regular freelancer through E&I as an artist uh, and also as a writer. And uh, she ghost wrote an awful large number of the non-superhero features in most of the quality titles. Uh, according to Cat Ironwood as a historian, without getting her name signed to a lot of stuff, she would write entire issues of feature. Um, including the frontline stuff, right? Like she would, she was a, a ghost scripter who would like fill in for Brenner writing the clock or writing Dollman as well, uh, you know, at, at feature, um, and is kind of a forgotten figure um, among the early uh, pioneers, basically, of, of comics. So 1940, you know, you know, several months in, and there's a new studio that is churning out uh, material. So Quality uh, introduces, over the course of 1940, uh, three more new titles to add to its line. Uh, the first one that comes out is Crack. Crack Comics uh, debuts uh, in uh, May of 1940. Um, and uh, issue number five of Crack is the first comic that has the Quality Comics group on the cover as the business, uh, you know, as the, the company putting this out. Um, Crack was monthly when it started, um, with the uh, paper shortages of World War II, it will eventually go uh, bi-monthly uh, and stay that way through the rest of the time that it's, that it's being published. So the lead character that uh, they put in at the, at the front of, of Crack to carry over is the clock. He no longer appears in uh, feature and moves over to Crack as his new feature, basically, as, his new, uh, as the new lead. And the first issue of Crack also introduces a bunch more new characters churned out by the offices, uh, the, the, the studio. Uh, the number two character is a character called Black Condor. And Black Condor is a dementedly silly comic, basically, uh, without trying to be. It's dead serious in its application, but it's my favorite ridiculous origin. Um, and it's the first few issues of it are written by Will Eisner and drawn by Lou Fine. So it's, it's beautiful to look at. And the story of Black Condor is he is uh, Richard Gray Jr. And his parents are explorers. And he's a baby that they bring along while they're exploring mysterious new places. Um, and so his parents are climbing mountains in the Himalayas with their baby, uh, you know, like alongside with them at the camp. And they die in an avalanche. Terrible. And the baby survives. So the baby is now left alone on the side of a mountain in the middle of, you know, the snow and everything else that's coming down. Clearly, this baby is about to die of exposure. It, the baby is then taken in by a giant condor who brings it to his nest and raises the baby alongside its baby condors, right? Like, the, the, the you know, the eggs in the nest hatch. And Richard is raised by the mother condor along with all of her baby condors somehow by watching the condors learning to fly richard learns how to fly too and this it seems like it makes complete sense to everybody involved in the story uh and so richard becomes uh you know as he grows to a man flies around naked <laughs> you know, for most of the, uh, the most of the origin story with his, you know, private parts very carefully obscured by, you know, panels and clouds and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, flies around until he, you know, comes to, uh, you know, like society somewhere else in Nepal, presumably, uh, and, uh, you know, stops some crimes and also gets some pants. 
and uh, you know, basically has become a superhero. So he travels to America, as you do, uh, and uh, moves to Washington, D.C. While he is there, um, a senator, uh, a congressperson by the name of Thomas Wright has uh, found himself in trouble with the mob. Uh, for various reasons, uh, he is, you know, he's a he's a crusading crime fighter of a uh, of a senator. He's passing all kinds of laws and he's chasing down the mob. And the mob gets mad at him, and they have him assassinated. Well, it turns out he is assassinated directly in front of Richard Gray, and Richard Gray discovers that he and Thomas Wright look absolutely identical in another, you know, just like completely preposterous coincidence. And so Richard Gray takes on the identity of Thomas Wright. Uh, and goes ahead to become the first kind of like sitting congressperson slash superhero, uh, active, working, fighting crime in Washington, D.C. I did not make up a word of that. That is all 100% true, the, the actual story of the Black Condor. It's demented. Um, and yet the entire thing is sold to you as though it were completely serious. The other characters uh, are not quite as entertaining. Well, a couple of them are, but uh, you know, most of the other characters are relatively straightforward in Crack Number One. Um, the uh, next lead, you know, the, the third lead basically is a character called the Spider, and the Spider is uh, like uh, Green Arrow or somebody like that. is a is a uh, is a bowman uh, who is a vigilante. His shtick is that he like shoots you with arrows. Um, unlike the other. Uh, you know, like trick archer uh, characters that are around at the time for it. Uh, the spider doesn't use, he doesn't go for trick arrows. Uh, he just shoots you with pointy arrows that, you know, hurt you in, and or kill you. Um, hilariously, the name of the strip in the comic is called Alias the Spider. Uh, because that was the, the, the phrase, basically, was like the guy's name, uh, comma, Alias the Spider. Uh, a great many young kids who were unfamiliar with the word alias assumed that that meant that his first name was alias. And so the character would be referred to uh, by a lot of fans, that sort of thing, as alias, comma, the spider, uh, which was not correct. And the comics, uh, you know, like had to keep correcting people who would uh, who, who would say it wrong. Um, the series also included uh, Red Torpedo. Uh, who was basically a uh, a brilliant scientist named Jim Lockhart, who builds a super sub uh, that can fly and do all sorts of other things, but is basically just a really cool submarine with a whole bunch of gadgets attached to it, from which he like fights crime. Um, and there was a series called Space Legion that was in it. And then the uh, the last of their titles was Madame Fatale, and Madame Fatale was uh, Detective Richard Stanton who was a master of disguise, at least in his first story. And in order to solve the first crime that he, uh, the, you know, the first story's crime that he was dealing with, had to dress up as a little old lady uh, in order to fool the bad guys and, uh, you know, solve the crime. Decided, apparently, that he liked dressing up as a little old lady. And therefore, for the next uh, 22 issues of the comic, would dress up as a little old lady every issue. And use that as his, you know, secret identity of fighting crime. So he was a, you know, like ordinary guy detective in his secret identity, and in his costumed, quote unquote, superhero identity, he basically looked like Aunt May, uh, and you know, like he wore a hat and would like, you know, smack people with his bag and that sort of thing. And uh, nobody would ever take him seriously as a superhero, or nobody would ever suspect him because he was a harmless little old lady. Uh, he ran his detective agency with the assistance of uh, two uh, sidekicks who were called Tubby and Scrappy. Uh, and he also had a parrot uh, named Hamlet, 
who he would get into regular arguments with. Once again, one of the most wonderfully demented Golden Age character concepts who has ever existed uh, and, uh, you know, is still technically part of the DC universe where they occasionally make, you know, like joking references to him. But, uh, you know, basically America's first uh, cross-dressing superhero. The series would go crack would continue uh, right up until, you know, like the end, basically, uh, right, right up until the, the final days of quality. Uh, later characters who appeared in it were Tor, the magic master, uh, who was basically uh, another ripoff of, you know, Blackstone and those guys, like Zatanna, uh, like Zatara, basically, um, you know, like the, the magician who wears a suit and casts spells sometimes by speaking backwards or, uh, you know, like otherwise, uh, uh, you know, needing to cast a spell. Um, Captain Triumph was also an interesting character. Uh, this is Lance Gallant. Uh, and when Lance Gallant is his brother, uh, Michael Gallant is murdered and he becomes, he, he gets haunted by his own brother's ghost and uh, discovers that uh, when he presses the T-shaped uh, birthmark on his arm, he can merge with Michael's ghost and get superpowers. Um, those superpowers included both being super strong and invulnerable, but he could also turn invisible and he could shape change and he could do a whole bunch of other stuff basically as needed by the writer uh, for that issue. Um, but it was kind of like an interesting character concept because when they were separated, they could still go out and like do fight crime. Right. And so, uh, he was like ordinary guy, uh, you know, with like detective skills when he was not being possessed by his brother's ghost and his brother's ghost could go sneak around and be invisible and spy on people and stuff. And then when it came time to actually like fight crime, the two of them would merge into one mighty being of captain triumph and go deliver, you know, a horrible beating to the, to the bad guys. Um, the other major one, uh, major character in Crack, who was not a superhero at all, was Penn Miller. And Penn Miller was by Arpanagian, um, as mentioned before. And Penn Miller was a detective whose gag was, the shtick of the character was that he was a comic book artist uh, who occasionally solved crimes. And somehow, as a comic book artist, he managed to like you know run into all kinds of murders and crimes and that sort of thing, just by hanging out, living in the city, uh, and would then you know like draw the you know the the adventures that he actually got into uh, into a mythical comic book um, and claim that uh, you know this was the, the 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 strip that you were reading was in fact a real adventure by the guy who did the writing and art and and art for it. It was kind of like a funny. Uh, running gag that lasted for several years in, in Crack and was a very good series. Um, so that was uh, that that was Crack basically. That was uh, you know like the next big success. Um, starting in the summer of 1940, they added two more after that. That brought their total up to five uh, comics that they were publishing. At this point, it's a big enough deal that Arnold has stopped being a sales rep uh, and is now kind of like running this company full time. It's a full time gig for him. And the next two titles that he puts out are called Hit and National, and they both de debut in July of 1940. The uh, original lineup of Hit, as it appears, uh, includes uh, a bunch of like spy and sci-fi features and three superhero titles. Uh, the uh, first three characters who appear in Hit are Neon the Unknown. Uh, Neon the Unknown is American soldier Tom Corbett, who is in North Africa. Uh, you know, like fighting the Nazis, basically, cause though, though he starts a little early for that. But, uh, you know, it's clear that he's fighting somebody who look a lot like Nazis. 
and he f- gets separated from his unit. His unit gets uh, gets trapped, and he's separated from them. And he finds a mystical oasis, and he drinks from it, and that gives him superpowers. And he goes on to fight crime with his you know mysterious set of superpowers. He can fly. He can read minds. He can do a whole bunch of mysterious things. And so he becomes known as Neon the Unknown, uh, and that'll last for about three years um, in Hit. Uh, the next character didn't really start as a superhero. It's, it's called Hercules, and but it doesn't have anything really to do with the uh, with the mythical Hercules. It's just the guy's name. Uh, his name is actually Joe Hercules, and Joe Hercules is a circus strongman um, who you know like lift weights and performs feats of strength in the circus. And incidentally, in his first few stories. Um, you know, gets involved in, you know, fighting crimes and having wacky adventures while working for the circus. By later in the stories, his strength has gone from being, oh, he's a really strong guy to he's preposterously superhuman and you can shoot him in the face and it will do no damage and he can pick up an elephant and throw it at you and that sort of thing. There is no explanation as to like where any of these powers come from. He's just that strong. Um, and so he never really becomes a terribly serious superhero, and he lasts for about three and a half years with the adventures of Joe Hercules. Um, the other lead character, uh, or the other superhero character in the first one, he wasn't a lead at all, he was like kind of buried in the back of Hit, uh, is perhaps the most lasting uh, character from the early days of Hit, anyway, and this is the Red Bee. And the Red Bee is a beloved, ridiculous character. He is uh, Assistant District Attorney Richard Raleigh, um, who is, you know, he's a, he's a lawyer. He works in the district attorney's office. And he sees all of these criminals who have good lawyers who are getting away with committing crimes and the legal system isn't able to, you know, the, to put them away properly. And so like many district attorneys, he becomes a masked vigilante and goes out and fights crime. Uh, the way that he goes out and fights crime, well, it turns out that his hobby, when he is not being a district attorney, is bee training, bee raising and training. And so he has several hives of uh, of honeybees and that sort of thing that like are you know out back of his house, um, and somehow he manages to train those bees to follow his commands. Um, and with his army of trained bees, he goes out and fights crime. His favorite bee, uh, the the recurring bee that helps him, just a single bee basically who is his sidekick, is named Michael, and Michael lives in his belt buckle. And so uh, when Red Bee is out, uh, you know, fighting crime and doing things, he just opens up his belt buckle and Michael the Bee comes out and helps him with his various bee-related skills. Um, How Michael the Bee is able to sting so many people and not die uh, like ordinary bees do is never explained. Um, Nobody uh, uh, had anything to do with this comic, apparently knew anything about bees. Um, but uh, bees are apparently, uh, you know, 100% uh, uh, resistant to having their stingers torn out uh, in this universe, anyway. And so, entire clouds of bees will frequently wind up uh, helping Richard Rowley in his uh, in in his crime fighting. Somehow, um, the stories never make a great deal of sense, and they're you know just yet another marvelously demented character that most people can't believe was ever actually real. Um, but he absolutely was, and he lasted for um, almost four years uh, as a uh, as, as a, a star of hit comics. Um, other characters that appeared in the comic, there were uh, you know over the course of the run of it, there was a character called the Old Witch who was uh, uh, appeared regularly 
wasn't really a superhero story. It was kind of a horror thing. Um, but it's most notable as the first art that Reed Crandall ever did uh, professionally in comics was in uh, hit number 10 in an old witch story. Um, there was a character called Stormy Foster. Stormy Foster was a superhero, definitely, um, who never actually you know, took on an identity or wore a mask or anything. Um, but he was a pharmacist who took special vitamins that made him uh, super strong and super fast and super racist because he had a, a Chinese sidekick uh, who uh, both worked with him in the pharmacy and helped him fight crime. And his name was, and I'm not kidding here, Ah Chu. And uh, this was, of course, the height of, you know, like racial comedy in, uh, you know, 1942. And it's all very embarrassing and probably best forgotten by everyone. Um. <laughs> the other wow. major yeah, character cool, yeah. introduced in Hit, who would eventually become the lead of Hit, is one of the most important characters that quality will ever create. And that's Kid Eternity. And Kid Eternity begins in issue number 25 of it. So it's already, you know, it's 1942, 43 when that actually happens. Um, and Kid Eternity, this is basically the, the Kid Eternity series is kind of a ripoff of the series uh, of the movie, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. And uh, it, similarly to that is the, the um, Warren Beatty uh, 70s movie of Heaven Can Wait. Right. The premise is that somebody dies when they weren't supposed to die. Right. Heaven screws up. Heaven makes an error of some sort. And so young child, Kid Eternity, Kid Freeman, um, dies when he is it is not his time. And so in order to kind of like make this up to him, he is uh, allowed to become a ghost and to, you know, kind of basically like haunt the, the world again with the assistance of a spiritual uh, guide basically who is called Mr. Keeper and Kid Eternity's power he can uh, materialize uh, as a ghost like you know his, his basic state is to be intangible and invisible like a ghost but he can become solid and seeable anytime um, and when he says the word eternity his magic word eternity then he can summon the spirits of the dead to come help him Right, so every adventure that he has would be like a miniature history lesson by the writer of the comic. Basically, um, once again, uh, uh, Eisner wrote some of them, but several other people were were involved in it. And this is where Nick Cardi got some of his first starts. Um, where you know, Kid Eternity would get into trouble, and he would just summon George Washington to come help him, or he would summon, you know, Daniel Boone, or he would summon, you know, Caesar or something. Right, like some historical figure, some real person. Uh, you know, who was dead would m appear and either give him advice or actually help him fight in the case like, you know, Abraham Lincoln would show up and then wrestle somebody uh, just, you know, to teach you that Abraham Lincoln had been a wrestler as a young man. Um, it's kind of preposterous and yet it always worked. And it was one of the best written and it's the first quality character that really starts to approach the big names for sales. Right when Hit Comics makes Kid Eternity their lead feature, Hit becomes one of the titles that is regularly hot on the tail of Action and Superman and Batman and Detective and Captain Marvel Adventures, that sort of thing. It's you know it, it's the first really big, really money making uh, series for for quality. Um, by issue number twenty nine, Hit they've gotten rid of most of the backup features. Right, uh, you know, a title that used to have ten features in it now only has five or six because there are three Kid Eternity stories in every comic because he's that popular a character. 
Uh, the other one that takes off is National. And National uh, also starts in July of 1940. The lead character, and pretty much you know stays the lead character all the way through the run, uh, is a hero called Uncle Sam. And obviously, Uncle Sam is you know arrives at exactly the right time uh, historically in a time where you know like patriotic comics and patriotic heroes like Captain America are just you know kind of like taking off. And Uncle Sam is in fact uh, the actual spirit of America. Right, he gets a he gets several different origins over the course of his run. Um, whether or not he is in fact actually a soldier from the Revolutionary War, or whether he has you know possessed the body of a guy who happened to look like the image of Uncle Sam or something like that, uh, they never kind of like stick to it. There's no you know there's no one canon uh, version, and most of the stories he does not have any other kind of identity. He is just the spirit of America. Something bad has gone on. Somebody is, you know, insulting America. The American troops are in trouble. Something is, you know, something needs to be done. And our hero, uh, Uncle Sam, puts on his hat and, you know, goes off to give the bad guys a licking. Uh, and so Uncle Sam has a preposterous collection of powers. Um, he has, you know, super strength. He can grow to be the size of a giant. He can see the future. He has all kinds of ridiculous powers. Once again, that very wildly depending on who's writing him. But the one thing that is uh, always mentioned uh, when he, you know, kind of like makes his speech about who he is and what he's about is that his powers are proportionate in strength to America's commitment to liberty and freedom. So if America should ever lose faith, uh, in liberty and freedom as as concepts as virtues, then Uncle Sam will lose his powers and go away. But as long as true Americans believe that America is a special place, then he will always be there to come punch a Nazi, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he remains. He's he's a steady seller. National is a steady seller. He's the co he's the uh, cover feature for most of National Comics. Um, he never really quite approaches. The big leagues, right? He never gets up to the level of Kid Eternity or the other big league titles from quality that we'll talk about later, like Black Hawk or, or Plastic Man. He's always kind of the fourth or fifth most popular guy. Um, so they sell well. They do fine. He never loses his job or anything, never loses his, his slot. But he also never really kind of like takes off as a character. They never can quite figure out what to do with him. Um, the uh, other characters who uh, back him up, uh, uh, Penn Miller, uh, appears over here as well as he does over in uh, other um, quality titles. Um, and uh, so there are several Penn Miller uh, uh, adventures that take place in National uh, as well. Um, and then uh, there is a character called Wonder Boy uh, who shows up. Wonder Boy uh, is an alien who came to Earth on a meteorite. Um, completely unexplained where he came from but he you know shows up he he lands in a far, you know in a in a in a field much like superman except he's not a baby he's like 9 uh when he arrives and he already has you know tremendous superpowers and everything the uh, the you know city officials town officials try to treat him like an orphan and uh you know have him uh, put in an orphanage but he will basically have none of that and quickly uses his powers to run away from the orphanage um and winds up joining up with the army uh, like overseas and becoming, you know, Bucky style, kind of like a, a sidekick to a unit of adventurous soldiers. And he's got super strength. He's much stronger than an ordinary man, even though he's only like nine years old. And he's one of the first characters with danger sense as a power, right? Like spider sense kind of thing. He can always tell when something bad is about to happen. 
um, as as you know explicitly listed as one of his powers. He's not just you know paying attention. He actually has a mystical power that tells him to do that. Um, he never gets more of an origin explained. We never find out where he came from, you know, where his meteor came from or anything. And he was never particularly popular and he stays kind of like a second or third tier, you know, backup feature. Um, the uh, National also gets yet another Mandrake, Blackstone, Zatara type ripoff magician wearing a suit, that sort of thing, um, who is called Merlin, um, who is uh, actually playboy Jock Kellogg, who has, uh, you know, mastered magic and like those guys also occasionally speaks backwards to cast spells, uh, literally looked almost exactly like Tor uh, in the other comic, except that he had a mustache and Tor did not. Otherwise, I will be, you know, damned if I can tell the difference between them uh, looking at a panel. If we can't see his mustache, I don't know which of them, which of the two of them it is. Um, but those four are basically like the lead characters. They're the only superhero type characters. And then there are several other like comedy features and a couple of other adventure features in National. Starting with issue number five, uh, a new superhero uh, is added to the lineup who is called Quicksilver. And Quicksilver is, you know, super fast, like Flash or Johnny Quick level fast. Um, and is kind of famous for having almost no information about who he is. He doesn't have a secret identity that we know. Uh, literally lives in a cave. Uh, his, his headquarters is a secret cave at the edge of town. Um, and once again, because this is quality and there's occasionally super racism going on, he has two ethnic sidekicks. Um, yet another Chinese uh, sidekick. Uh, we had we had Atu last time, um, but Quicksilver has a Chinese sidekick named Hu Mi, which is you know even funnier uh, if you're a racist idiot. Um, and then he also has a, a Native American sidekick uh, who is called uh, Shoshone, which not really, uh, you know, the, a name of a people, not a guy, but okay, you know, by quality standards, I suppose it's not that bad. Um, and we goes on to, you know, be in the series for over five years without having any further information about him ever revealed. He just runs around and uses his super speed to fight crimes. When DC winds up with the acquisition of the quality characters, Quicksilver and his mysterious lack of information about him will actually become a plot point um, that Mark Wade and other writers will use in the Flash comics, um, because that character Quicksilver will become the character that they refer to as Max Mercury. And the entire story, backstory of Max Mercury is that he has traveled through time uh, every time he uses his superpowers, his super speed to the max limit. He ends up traveling forward in time um, and winding up in a new time frame, right? In time period, he advances 20 years into the future, or 50 years into the future. And so he has no family, and he's always trying to, like, you know, uh, figure out how to use his powers correctly without causing that to happen. And so Quicksilver is just one of the identities that uh, Max Mercury had over the course of his history is the DC revelation. None of that is in the quality stuff, of course. There will be other characters in uh, National who appear. There is another spirit duplicate at this point uh, who is uh, called the Whistler. And the Whistler is reporter Mallory Drake, whose, uh, quote, haunting whistle terrorized criminals. I'm terrorized just thinking about it. And then there will also be uh, a character called the Barker. And the Barker is Clarence Callahan. And he is an actual carnival barker his day job his actual job is being a barker at a carnival like you know inviting people to come in and see all the crazy people 
his collection of circus freaks that he works with go out and solve crimes at night when they are not being a carnival show. So he the car, the the Barker goes out and he solves crimes and his assistants are like the bearded lady and the strong man and the midget and et cetera, et cetera, and all these other like crazy uh uh you know like freak show characters basically are his team of crime solving uh you know like agents. Um it sounds insane. It really is. And yet it is actually probably the best written of the series that ever appear in, in National. Um it lasts for, uh, there are 34 uh, Barker stories. And if you ever get a chance to take a look at some of them in reprint, you, you might want to. It's actually really the only ones of this, uh, this, this collection uh, of quality that I can actually recommend to a modern audience. Uh, but by this point now, we're in, you know, it's, it's late 1940, and now Quality has five titles featuring superheroes. And with Kid Eternity, at least, they are actually, you know, starting to threaten uh, being a series that could compete with, you know, with National and Fawcett and those the, those guys, basically. Um, and so they are, you know, getting ready to head into, uh, you know, like the, uh, the, the 1950s uh, or through the rest of the 40s into the 50s. And so we will kind of pick that up uh, with part three uh, coming up next time. Yes. Next time we'll pick up with quality three. I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Bye-bye. Thanks for coming.